You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns uh, on its four corners. Its horns shall be one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. Also, you shall make its pans to receive its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make a grate for it, uh, a network of bronze. And uh, on the network, you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath that the network may be midway up the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood and overlay them with bronze The poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. You shall make it hollow with boards, as it was shown you on the mountain, so shall they make it. You shall also make the court of the tabernacle for the south side. There shall be hangings for the court made of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long for one side, and its 20 pillars, and their 20 sockets shall be bronze. The hooks of uh, the pillars and their bands shall be silver. Likewise, along the length of the north side, there shall be hangings 100 cubits long with its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets of bronze and the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver. Along the width of the court on the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. The width of the court On the east side shall be 50 cubits. The hangings on one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. And on the other side shall be hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long, woven of purple, blue and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver. It shall have four pillars and four sockets. All the pillars shall be... Uh, All the pillars around the court shall have bands of silver. Their hooks shall be uh, of silver and their sockets of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the width 50 throughout, and the height 5 cubits made of fine woven linen and its sockets of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for all its service, all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. And you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually in the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony. Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to the generations on behalf of the children of Israel. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word. Uh, sometimes we, we do confess the Old Testament is a bit tedious to us. It wasn't to the Old Testament saints. Here were uh, precise instructions to build the tabernacle and how thankful they were. Uh, but to us, at some at times we wonder what the relevance of it all is to us. Thank you for the clear guide of Hebrews. That, that gives us a great deal of help. Uh, but some of these things were obviously self-evident as well. And we ask you, Lord, that the preaching of the Old Testament would be an edifying experience to your church, even today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapters 27 and 28, or 26 and 27, excuse me, of Exodus provide the instructions concerning the construction of the tabernacle. You remember uh, Moses saw the pattern on the mountain, and the Lord is here. Uh, giving him the precise instructions, which Moses then recorded 
uh, for the benefit of the people. And one of the things that you notice immediately, as I was reading it, as you would read it on your own, in your own personal Bible reading, is uh, the intricate nature of the description, uh, the kind of stuff which admittedly you might skim through. But the Lord was giving the people instructions, just as he had said, that were to be precise. The construction of the tabernacle, uh, not in any sense, was left to man. It was something that God uh, told Moses and the people to do precisely, according to the pattern and the design shown to Moses. So that explains why uh, we have so much detail. Uh, One observation that Matthew Henry makes that I found fascinating was that we have more details concerning the tabernacle, the construction of the tabernacle, than we have concerning the creation of the world uh, in in Moses' uh, writing. And that gives us a sense, uh, relatively, of the priorities of the Bible, and thus the priorities of God's people. And while we're not interested with all the exact details of the tabernacle, since uh, we, unlike the Jews, don't have to construct the tabernacle, we are interested still in the general sense, again, what Voss calls the symbolism and the typology of the tabernacle and the ceremonial law. What it symbolized to the people and what it looked forward to typologically in the new covenant. Now, uh, let me just begin by giving the basic features of what is being described in these two chapters. Under eight points, very simply, you have inner curtains or drapes in verses one through six being described. That's the first point. The second point, you have outer curtains, verses 7 through 13. And then you have a further covering, verse 14. That's number 3. And then in verses 15 through 30, you have a wooden framework upon which the uh, the curtains were to be draped, providing the structure for the tent. And then in verses 31 through 37, as the fifth point, you have two veils. Or two partitions. The first of these is more significant. Typically what we speak of uh, when we speak of the veil. And we find it referred to in the New Covenant or the New Testament. The veil which divided uh, the holy place from the most holy place. I remember hearing R.C. Sproul once talk about the inner sanctum. I think the inner sanctum is the most holy place, if I understand its meaning correctly. And so the tabernacle or the tent had two rooms divided by this partition or this veil. The holy place and the most holy place. Uh, And so the curtain is described in verses 31 through 34, which was to divide these. Inside the most holy place, the ark the mercy seat and the cherubim were placed. And it is here that the presence of the Lord resided, since he said that he would reside uh, upon the mercy seat. He would dwell upon it as his throne. And so it's in that compartment or that room that the presence of God uh, was present. And it was into this room that the high priest entered only once a year on the Day of Atonement from Leviticus 16. But on the other side, the holy place, the first room, there was the table and the candlesticks, verse 35, which was the daily place of ministry for the priest. And so they were able to enter that room daily and minister there daily. But the, the, the inner sanctum only once a year, and it was only the high priest who was able to do so. 
and only with the shedding and the sprinkling of blood. There was a second veil or draping, which is described in verses 36 and 37, which was simply the entrance to the tent, which was also significant because we find there a second barrier, uh, which barred entrance into the tabernacle uh, from the people. The priests were able to enter uh, the first room. The high priest was able to enter the second room once a year, but no one but the priests were able to enter at all. And so you have a second barrier, which led into the holy place. Two partitions, two barriers, as it were, which separated the people from the most holy place. Two veils, in fact. Now, number six, you have an altar that was outside the tent in the courtyard, which was set up for burnt offerings. Verses one through eight of chapter 27. Also, you have the description in verses nine through 19 of the courtyard itself. Uh, where the altar was found and the people were to gather for worship, offering their sacrifices and so forth. And then number eight, there were instructions concerning the oil for the candlesticks in the holy place, verses 20 and 21, which brings us to the end. The people were to provide the oil and then the priests were to daily uh, supply the oil and the candlesticks so that they were always burning in, uh, in the holy place. And so that gives us a very general picture of what the tabernacle looked like and consisted of. There were, in essence, three main areas. You had the tabernacle, or the tent itself, which had two rooms, and then you had the outer court that was also enclosed. And each area had its own purpose. But now I want to make a series of points uh, about uh, most of these features. The first is that we should see that the tabernacle was a tent, very unlike the temple, which would come later. This is a fascinating thing to to consider, that before there was a temple, there was a tabernacle. And what is even more fascinating to consider is the fact that in the New Covenant, especially in Hebrews, it is the tabernacle, not the temple, uh, that the writer appeals to as the copy and the pattern of heaven. Not as though to say the temple wasn't, but as far as the Christian is concerned, it would seem that the tabernacle has the priority. And the reason that is the case is because the tabernacle was suited to Israel's experience in the wilderness as a pilgrim people journeying to the promised land. And it is that experience which is analogous to our own. Uh, So what we find in the tabernacle is that God's presence and his mercy and his grace were at once localized in the presence of the tabernacle. And yet it was also portable. That they as pilgrims might take God with them wherever they went, which is also analogous to the Christian and the New Covenant situation. Very unlike the settled existence in the land that would come later. So the tabernacle was a tent. Now I'm going to make something of that later on under my third main heading, but uh, so much, uh, or, uh, so much uh, for now. Uh, number two, we see that the structure and all its features was suited to this particular dispensation. The tabernacle was an old covenant phenomenon and everything about it uh, was suited to that dispensation. It would not in any sense be suited to this dispensation. If we were to try to construct something like that today, it would appear to us to be an oddity. And yet under the old covenant, it was just right. And by this, I mean two things in particular. One was the fact of God's presence, which is spiritual, uh, needed a, a visible form under that dispensation. The people needed something they could behold and something they could touch. 
In other words, it was suited, uh, as I'll later say, to the weakness of that dispensation. And the strength of the new covenant is seen in the fact that uh, there is nothing visible uh, for us to behold, uh, at least not in the same way. There's very little, I should say. But also, number two, we notice the grandeur of the structure. It was a tent, but if you look at what's being described here, you can't help but notice uh, what a beautiful structure it was. They were to use the finest linen. They were to overlay things with gold and bronze. They were to weave images of the cherubim into the tapestry. It was obviously something that was very inspiring, quite frankly, to look at. It was something that was meant to impress the people deeply with the glory and the grandeur of God himself. And yet far better and indeed far more glorious, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, is that dispensation where there are no such external aids. Where, it's, as, I, uh, as I keep having to correct myself, very few, far less. We do have the Lord's Supper. Uh, I struggle to think of another external visual aid, but uh, at any rate, far, far less. Whereas in the Old Covenant, it was all visual. There was always something to see. But today, when men pine for something to see and to smell, God says, be content solely with my spiritual presence. Be content to live by faith and not by sight. The new covenant, unlike the old covenant, is a covenant of strength. It is a covenant for spiritual persons only. A covenant or a dispensation in which there is nothing or at least very little for the outer man, for the carnal sort of person. And yet one which is deeply satisfying to the spiritually minded Christian. For they are content only with that which is spiritual. And if anything, they find the outward and the visual to be a distraction. Outward aids are helpful only to the weak in faith. And again, the old covenant was a dispensation of weakness and shadows. But let us rejoice, as Hebrews says, to realize that we live in an age of the fullness of the spirit, which requires no such age. No such aids, I mean. And let us seek to be so spiritually minded that we are content with nothing else. The spiritual presence of a spiritual God and spiritual worship. And now, if you notice, if you think of the external aids that we have, for instance, the cross. Well, that's something that men could behold. And they could even behold the Savior himself. And, of course, we have the Lord's Supper as well. But... These are things which are, we are able to see, or at least at times the church has been able to see. But even then you notice the contrast in the two dispensations because the things which men behold now are contemptible. They appear to us in the form of weakness. But that is also suited to a more spiritual dispensation because men are able to behold, as Paul says many times, uh, the hidden inner power of God being manifest in human weakness. Again, Only the spiritual person can discern this. These are things that can be apprehended only by faith. But the tabernacle wasn't like that. It was suited to an age where outward aids were common and which were necessary. In which the fullness of the spirit had not yet been poured out. Now, the next point has to do with the veil. Which represented two realities at once. It represented, on the one hand, the fact that God could be approached. Because it wasn't an impenetrable barrier. It was actually the means by which or the door through which the priest was able to come into the immediate presence of God, which resided in the whole, the most holy place. So uh, that on the one hand, but also 
And really this is the greater reality or significance of that veil, that inner veil, which the New Testament seizes upon. It was a barrier. It wasn't impenetrable, as I say, but it was still a barrier. It, it existed for the purpose of keeping people away, of keeping people at a safe distance, and of instructing the people that it was only possible to come into that place or through the veil by the blood of atonement offered by the high priest on the day of atonement. And so... The way that I could summarize this point, and I'm not alone in doing this, I think Matthew Henry puts it almost exactly like this, Uh, we see in the tabernacle that grace was available to the people, there was real worship that occurred there and real means of grace, but that grace for the old covenant saint was always veiled. And if you read again what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, that is what you'll see exactly, that, that what was veiled to them we now behold unveiled. And so again, constantly we notice the privileges and the blessings of the Old Covenant, but the far greater glory that we uh, are able to enjoy under the New Covenant. And, and then there is so much more that I could say about this veil. I, I almost could preach a sermon just on this point, uh, but that is not my intention. Let, let me just notice that uh, it is spoken of in Hebrews several times. The, the one verse that I want uh, to notice is, Chapter 10, verse 20, when we are bid to draw near to the throne of grace through uh, the new and living way, which is uh, the flesh of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ becomes the veil, no more as a barrier to God, but as an invitation to draw near into his presence to all who have faith indiscriminately. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20, the veil now is his flesh. It's the cross. Well, at the same time, we see in Matthew chapter 27, verse 5, that it was this veil, the inner veil, that was torn in two. Not in the tabernacle, but in the temple and the second temple at that. But the point was, Christ does away with the veil. And in doing away with the veil, he does away with the old covenant. And he replaces it with his own body and his own sacrifice. I'll have more to say to that under the third heading. The next thing we notice is the altar. The altar, now that was in the court. That was not in the tent. The altar was a common place of sacrifice where the people, along with the priests, were permitted to come. And they were enabled to uh, there bring their offerings and bring their sacrifices and the priests would, uh, would make sacrifices for them upon that altar. And it is on that basis that we see uh, within the enclosure outside of the court, that there was real communion with God, which existed within the old covenant. As the people entered those gates into the court and they made their offering and the Lord ministered to them from uh, the inner most holy place. You remember what the Lord says in chapter 25, verse 22, speaking of the throne of the mercy seat. There I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in the commandments of the children of Israel. You have then the people, you have the priest, and you have the Lord all coming together in an act of communion, which we call worship. And it is that altar, in fact, which provides the backdrop. Uh, you, you can do this on almost every point. 
And, uh, and, and there's so much to say, but I'll try to say as little as I can about these particulars. But it's that altar that provides uh, the backdrop of what is said in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10. We have an altar from which, these two, uh, the, from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. He's talking about that altar. We have an altar, he says, under the new covenant. One which is far better, one which is heavenly, one which is perfected. But more important, as far as the imagery of the symbolism of the altar was concerned, is under the fifth point now, uh, in terms of the imagery that we have, the horns of the altar. Which is something I confess, I don't altogether understand. Uh, but I'll tell you uh, the two things that I was able to discern about this. And that is, uh, the horn of the altar is where, after the sacrifice was made upon uh, the altar itself, you had a horn on each of the four corners, the blood was smeared. There's definitely significance there, but, uh, but along with that, as a second point, is the fact that, uh, and you can think of instances in the Bible where this occurred, where the sinner might lay hold of the horns of the altar within the sanctuary and find refuge, or at least seek to find refuge. So the altar was represented to the sinner as a place of mercy, where he not only offered his sacrifices, but he might tangibly lay hold of it. But then there was the courtyard. A few comments about that. The courtyard was a place of worship. Again, it was a common place. The central feature of the courtyard was the altar, but it was much bigger than that, and there was room for people to gather. It was like the tent. It was a sacred place, which at once was divided from the tent, if you think of it, but also from the world. There was a partition or a barrier, in, or a double barrier, let, let me say again, uh, to the most holy place. But there was also a wall, a partition, all around the court, which separated Israel from the world. And, and really, that's what the court was. It was both things at once. This is Israel's, the, the, the non-priestly Israelites' station. Barrier set up between the Lord barriers set up between them and the world. And they never fully partook of either. But still, this was her privilege, that she, unlike the world, was able to gather into the court. And thus, it was this place that the sons of Korah longed to be, the courts of the Lord. When the sons of Korah in, in Psalm 84, which has become, in the past year, uh, probably my favorite, or at least the psalm I thought about the most, this is what they were talking about. My soul longs, even yes, uh, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Uh, verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. That's what the sons of Korah were longing for, to come into this place and, and just to get out of the world. But obviously, if we think of what those courts represented to the old covenant believer in contrast to what we now enjoy under the new covenant, obviously, we are able to see that the gospel extends much further. It not only breaks down the barrier to God, but also the barriers to the world, which divided Israel uh, from the Gentiles. So that we're able to see that the gospel is diffusive. It, it extends into the whole world. Which is not to say... And I would never suggest that we are not to be thankful for the places 
in which God's people are found worshiping God. And really, in, in that sense, it is not wrong to speak of this place as a sanctuary, though not in the sense that it was spoken of under the Old Covenant. But here is where the saints are found. Here is where they're found worshiping. Here are the courts of the Lord. But the glory of the New Covenant is that God's presence is not confined to one place. If we find ourselves in another land or in another place or traveling as I just was, we might venture into other churches. And so obviously, again, our privileges are much greater and they're much broader under the new covenant. We're meant to see that. But then, uh, lastly, the oil. Just something briefly to say about that. And then I want to speak under a third heading of the, uh, uh, some general observations about the tabernacle. The oil, again, the people provided it, and then the, 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 the priest ministered it uh, daily in, in, by placing it into the lamps to keep them burning perpetually. And so uh, the priests, in an immediate fashion, were providing light for the tent, but in a more symbolic fashion, they were providing light. I found the commentator saying for the world, but I thought it better to say providing light to Israel. They were Israel's ministers, and they were providing light to them as their priests. But now let me make uh, certain specific points, or general points rather, concerning the tabernacle as we consider what it was. We've been looking at the particular features, but I want to just uh, take a step back and consider that place and notice what it represented And these are observations which are taken from Voss. There's actually five names which are given to the tabernacle, if you could believe it. And then there's a sixth uh, point which could be made as well. The first name is tabernacle, which if I were to ask you what tabernacle meant, you would say tent, and that would not be true. And I actually didn't even know that until Voss pointed it out to me. Uh, tabernacle, the word used for, tab, for tent is not the same word used for tabernacle in Hebrew. And so when the word for tabernacle is used in Hebrew, it actually means something slightly different. It means a dwelling place. Now, the second word is tent, so I'll get to that in a moment. But the first word is a tabernacle, a dwelling place. In other words, the tabernacle was, first and foremost, the place of Yahweh's dwelling. It was a localized manifestation of his special gracious presence with his people. According to Voss, the word to dwell signifies both the idea of intimate association and identification. And so it isn't just that the Lord was dwelling generically, but he was dwelling with the people. He was intimately associating and identifying himself with the people. Therefore, number two, he inhabited tents. And why would that be? Well, because the people themselves inhabited tents at that time. And so by inhabiting a tent himself, the Lord was throwing his lot in with, with theirs. He was intimately associating and identifying with them and, and, the, and therefore dwelling with them. As they dwelt in tents, so did he. The Lord of glory, if you think of it, for as glorious as the tabernacle was, the Lord of glory made his abode in a humble tent as a way of identifying with the people. As Paul says, he shared this mode of habitation with them. It is also, thirdly, a tent of meeting. And that, uh, that actually occurred in one of the verses. I don't remember which one. And so the tent was uh, a place where the Lord and the people met together in an act of worship. God would condescend to the people 
And by his grace and through the ministry of the the priest, he would exalt the people to himself. They would meet together at the tabernacle. And so here the emphasis is not upon the haphazard, but upon the intentional prearranged place of meeting. And God was the one, therefore, who provided all of the provisions of this coming together. Again, through the ministry of the priests and through uh, the furnishings of the tabernacle. It is also a tent of testimony for the Ark of the Testimony and the testimony on the tablets dwelt there in the Ark. And thus the tabernacle itself became a testimony of Israel a testimony to Israel, I mean, of the contents found in the law. But then fifthly, it was called a holy place or a sanctuary. And the reason was, as we've seen before, because of the presence of God. It was because of the holiness of God himself. And everything about the sanctuary was meant to impress them with this fact. Again, not so much the holiness of the tabernacle, but the holiness of the God who inhabited the tabernacle. And whose holiness the tabernacle symbolized to them. And so everything about the tabernacle was meant to inspire the people with a sense of God's majesty and holiness. And because this was so, we can also see that it was a place where God's sanctifying influence was found. And so the people were sanctified by their participation in the worship that was found there. They were made holy as well. But the primary emphasis is not upon the holiness of the people nor the holiness of the priests but upon the holiness, again, of God, which was being manifested both in the tabernacle and in all that it represented. It was the abode of a holy God, the dwelling place of a holy God. He did not dwell there in principle only, but in actual fact. For we find in Exodus chapter 40 that the glory of his presence rushed into the tabernacle. And this is what made it not uh, a symbolically true sanctuary, but an actually true sanctuary, as the garden had been before and as heaven always is. And because this was so, his holiness was closely safeguarded from the sin of the people. There was, as we've seen, a double barrier, two veils, one which was only penetrated once a year, the other daily, but, but even then you see Their ministry was kept at a safe distance and all that occurred outside the tent was kept at a greater distance. Still, again, the reason is because of the presence of a holy God. This was not to protect God. uh, um, Yes, to protect God from the people, for God is not threatened by the presence of the people, sinful though they are, but the people from God, for their sin had made them unfit to dwell in the presence of a holy God, even as he dwelt with them. That was something of the paradox of Israel's existence. Both God's willingness and their unfitness to dwell together with God. And so for now a barrier was necessary. Lest he break forth in the wrath of his holiness against the sinfulness of his people. And yet let us see that even if there had been no sin, God's holiness would still have needed to be safeguarded. For God's holiness does not mean the lack of sin in God. Nor does it mean his inability to dwell with sinners. It means something far more profound than that. It means his essential difference and his exalted nature in contrast to his creation, even apart from sin itself. So that man, even devoid of sin, 
must of necessity at the sight of God be overwhelmed with the sense of his own unworthiness. While at the same time uh, be struck with a profound sense of reverence and awe in the presence of God. And this is something that is only compounded by sin if if not created by it. Even a sinless man cannot bear the sight of his holiness. But a sinner must feel this even more deeply. Because the gulf that exists between man who is dust and a holy God is only magnified by sin. And so there is, let us see again, this twofold dynamic present at the tabernacle with reference to the holiness of God as a sanctuary. Both the invitation to come into the presence of a holy God and the provisions which were made to make that possible. While at the same time the barriers which were erected to keep the people at a safe distance as we've seen already at the mountain. Both of these facts underscore the holiness of God. But the last thing which I would say, again, uh, borrowing from Voss, although we don't have this, uh, we had five titles and this is just a sixth observation. It isn't a title, although we could call it uh, the sanctuary, the throne room of God, although that isn't one of its titles. The throne room of the Almighty. This is most obvious in the fact that God's throne was quite literally placed there. And from this place, he ruled Israel. And equally from the fact that it was here and nowhere else that the people paid homage to the king. And thus, as Vol says, it was the tabernacle was his house and they were his invited guests, symbolizing and in some sense realizing before the fact the reality of heaven in which man resides in the presence and the palace of God, even worshiping him uh, with his angels, not as our own house, but as God's invited guests. That's exactly what heaven will become to us in the life to come. And that's what was beginning to be realized in the presence of the tabernacle. But then, let me ask this question. What are we uh, to conclude from all of these observations about the tabernacle? Uh, And not surprisingly, using Hebrews as our guide, since Hebrews has so much to say about the tabernacle and its application to the new covenant setting. And so in keeping with the arguments offered in Hebrews 8 and 9 about the tabernacle and 10 as well, we are to see in the tabernacle not a perfect picture, but still nonetheless a picture of the true heavenly tabernacle, which embodies and expresses every truth considered here in perfected form. All the symbolism and typology of the tabernacle passes into solid reality when you consider the true heavenly tabernacle. And when you with Christ are enabled to enter there and what we Christians are meant to see and told to hold as a firm conviction in Hebrews is that such a place really exists every bit as much as the tabernacle really existed. And that Christ, through offering himself up to God as an eternal sacrifice, has entered that very place. And he dwells there now bodily as the God man. And he ministers there now daily on our behalf in the presence of God. And there we find things that we find there, things such as the throne of grace. We even find a veil, though the veil here uh, is not the veil which is meant, as I said before, to hold us at a distance. But the veil becomes the very means by which we enter into the most holy place, the veil which is Christ's flesh. The veil not by which we are kept away, but invited in 
freely, fully, and boldly. Well, we've already seen this, but we must also appreciate the full force of this invitation. Not only that Christ has, by shedding his blood, torn the veil in two, but that there is now no barrier between man and God for those who approach God by that blood. It affords them a full and free access into the presence of God, where we are bid to draw, uh, where we are bid now to draw near. Which means, when we are told to draw near, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, we are bid to draw near into the very throne room of God's tabernacle where He dwells, and where God's Son and our High Priest dwells as well. So many of the admonitions of Hebrews assume this fact that heaven is the tabernacle of God and use the imagery of the tabernacle liberally to describe the realities of heaven which we are now privileged to enjoy by prayer and by worship now that we are partakers of the new covenant as well as seeing the heavenly tabernacle as the place of ceaseless activity on the part of our great high priest where he ever lives to intercede for us and to minister to our needs. So there is nothing that so helpfully describes the realities of the blessings of the new covenant, seeing Jesus Christ as our great high priest and heaven as the true tabernacle as this old idea found here in Exodus, the tent which we call the tabernacle. As we see the symbolism of the tent on the one hand, we appreciate the realities of heaven all the more. We learn by it to view Jesus Christ not merely as Savior and Lord, but to realize the office which enables him to be such things to us, Savior and Lord. It's that he, like the priest of old, has become our priest, which means uh, not only that he has identified with us, but that he has made offering uh, and intercession on our behalf. Only the offering and the intercession he provides is of a better kind. Since, as Hebrews tells us in chapter 9, the place he sought to enter was heaven itself on our behalf. And so it required better sacrifices than the old sacrifices, even the blood of the very Son of God, the God-man. And so we're left uh, with this comparison, uh, with a fuller view of what our salvation consists of. And seeing this unity between the old and the new covenants helps us to appreciate the value of Exodus today. Even all of this detail about the tabernacle. It brings us right into the arguments of Hebrews and some of the richest and the fullest expositions of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. But the question, and I'll close with this, which is sometimes asked is whether such things are really true. Is it really the case that when the believer prays today, And that when we gather together in worship, that we have really entered into the throne room of grace. And admittedly, it isn't always true. Hence the repeated admonitions of Hebrews to boldly enter there, implying that many were not. Many were not making a full use of their privilege. Just as many, he says a few verses later, had forsaken the gathering of the saints. Neither of these things are automatic. To be a Christian does not automatically bring you into the church, nor does it automatically bring you into the throne room of grace in heaven. One might just as easily be a stranger to the throne of grace as one can be to the household of faith. But the point remains, such a thing really is possible. And it is what makes prayer and Christian worship what they are. 
And what instills such confidence and boldness in the people of God as they are engaged in these spiritual services that they find by faith that they have laid hold of the horns of the altar, so to speak, in the presence of their high priest in God. And that through these means, grace is being ministered to them. At times it comes with such force and vigor that they can sense it. At other times they cannot. But what they cannot deny is that they're getting better and growing bolder in their profession all the time. Grace to help in time of need. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. This is what they find. Not only that, but a growing apprehension and sense of the glories of heaven. Gathering as it were, as he says, at Mount Zion. Hebrews chapter 12. Giving us a growing sense that the earth is not our home. But that we are destined to join Jesus in heaven where he has gone before us and now prepares a place for us. Yes, such things are real. Such things are available to us even now. And our sense of the reality of them only grows in proportion to the measure of our faith. And so let us, as the the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 4 verses 11 and following, let us be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. And skipping down to verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession and let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And now as we close our worship, let us stand together and sing as our final hymn of the month, a cappella, hymn number 56.